On today's podcast, we are talking to the author of a great new book that is simply titled Ali, A Life. Jonathan I joins us for a conversation on what it's like to go toe-to-toe, at least in a literary sense, with one of the most famous human beings on the planet. All ahead on the next episode of Grandstanding. All right, I am Kevin Kadick, that is Jay Busby. You are listening to Grandstanding on Yahoo Sports. Joining us today is Jonathan Eig. Jonathan is a Chicago-based author who has already written two great sports books, one on Lou Gehrig, the other on Jackie Robinson's first season in the major leagues. Now, it doesn't seem like it could get bigger than either of those, but Jonathan actually tackled arguably the biggest topic of them all, Muhammad Ali. Ali, a life, hit bookshelves earlier this month. It's just a great read. We love talking boxing here on the show, and we love talking about books and journalism, so this is really the best of both worlds. Jonathan, welcome to Grandstanding. Thanks. It's good to talk to you guys. Jonathan, what you've done with this book is is really great. Uh, and when I saw you were writing the book, I was really excited because not only do I try to read everything I can about Ali, but I'm also a big fan of your work uh, and the, the previous two sports books you did. I didn't read the book you wrote about the pill, but I guess I'm probably going to have to get to that one after <laughs> after the Muhammad book. But um, when I had the... When I saw you were writing it, I, I have to confess that I was like, oh, is he really going to do another Ali book? And I felt kind of bad for thinking that. And then I immediately thought, well, wait, he's actually doing this from the starting of Ali's book, if it's from the start of Ali's life to the end. And no one has really ever done that before because so many great things about Ali, whether it's documentaries or books, focus on specific chapters, his specific fights, his war against the government, but nothing from beginning to end. So my first question to you is, one, are you crazy for tackling such a big figure, figure like that? And then two, did you feel, also feel intimidated because not only are you going toe-to-toe with Muhammad Ali, but you're going toe-to-toe with the great authors that have written about him, from Norman Mailer to David <laughs> Remnick. I, 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 there had to be like at least a little lapse of judgment when you agreed to take this, this project on. Yeah, you're making it sound like a really bad idea. I'm having doubts now. Uh, um, no, you know, it was intimidating, but it was also thrilling at the same time because, um, you know, it, it's like climbing the biggest mountain of them all. And, and yeah, um, you know, George Plimpton and Norman Mailer and David Remnick, they, they'd been up some of these hills, but they hadn't climbed the whole thing. And, and if I could do this, it would be the greatest thing I'd ever done. I was so excited about it. Um, and I tried not to think about just how scary it was. Um, because you know, Ali's story is, is huge. And it's, it's like writing the, the history of 20th century America, you know, all of the race, the religion, the politics, and, and then you just happen to have some great boxing too. Um, it was, it was scary, but I just was so, um, thrilled with the chance to be the guy who, who gets to climb that mountain that I, I, I just never really thought never really doubted that I, that I wanted to do it. Sometime this summer, uh, Kevin texted me and said, you've got to listen to this podcast called Chasing Ali. It's about this guy who's doing a book on Ali, and you've got to, you got to tune in. I came in about halfway through, immediately listened to all the episodes. You did a, a great recapping on that of, of your whole process, trying to track down Ali himself, trying to speak to him for the book. I won't spoil it because it's, it's still even now, uh, even though the book is already out, it's worth listening to to see your journalistic process. But Take us through what that was like. What was it like trying to deal with so many different people, so many different sources, had so many different agendas, people having their hand out, people wanting something from you? How did you navigate that? It was so much fun. <laughs> and, 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 you know, my other books, almost everybody was dead. You know, for my book on Jackie Robinson, 
Jackie's wife was around and, and I got to spend time with her. But um, this is a different s- story entirely. This is, you know, most of the action here took place in the 60s and 70s. And most of the folks that I'm writing about are still alive. So I have to go out and meet them. I have to try to get in Don King's face. I have to try to get, in, you know, in, in a meeting with Larry Holmes or George Foreman and, um, you know, Ferdy Pacheco and all of Ali's wives and, and his lovers. Um, it was just crazy to to, uh, to have the opportunity to meet them all, but but every one of them was a challenge. You know, nobody really wanted to talk to me at first. Many people wanted to be paid for the interviews, and that's something I wouldn't do. So, just meant I had to work a lot harder to try to get at them. And um, you know, it was it, if you're an old school newspaper reporter like me, it's this is it was thrilling. You know, what what could be more fun? And then knocking on Don King's door and uh, and trying to get him to, to answer tough questions um, that that really nobody had ever asked him before, or at least uh, not in a long time. So I just had a blast. Yeah. Who's the person that kind of amused you the most? Who do you like hanging out out with the most? That sort of thing. I think my favorite person to hang out with was Larry Holmes. Um, just a sweet, sweet guy. Answered questions really honestly. Um, we had a few drinks together that definitely helped the mood. Um, and, and Don King was, was, was really fun too, in, in a different kind of way. He was a tough interview, but, um, but once he got him going, he was really insightful and, and, and more honest than I expected him to be. There are so many myths and tall tales about Ali and, um, it'd probably be pretty easy to go in there and repeat, repeat them ad nauseum, but. That's not what you do. Uh, you try to, you know, cut through all the crap and present the truth. What was your process like that w- with when you, you heard something or you saw a story that you've read for decades now? How did you get to the root of it? Well, in, in some ways, it helps that I'm not an expert on Ali, that I'm coming in, in this thing with only a sort of a superficial knowledge of his life and I'm having to learn everything from scratch. Um, but I found with my other books that a lot of these myths turn out to be untrue. You know, um, Al Capone didn't really hit those guys and hit that guy in the head with a baseball bat. Um, <laughs> and and Pee Wee Reese didn't really put his arm around Jackie Robinson's shoulder in 1947. Um, so I take nothing for granted. I you know I, I go in just trying to prove everything I can prove and 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 also dig up new stuff and don't assume that that the stories have all been told already because it turns out there's a lot of stuff about Ali that nobody knew. Nobody knew that his grandfather was a convicted murderer. I don't even think wow. Ali knew that. Wow. So, um, you know, there are these great myths, you know, the story about him having his bicycle stolen, and that's how he gets introduced to boxing. And that one turned out to be true, which was nice, because it doesn't happen that often that the myths turn out to be true. But then the one about him throwing his Olympic medal in the river because he was so mad about not being served in a in a white restaurant, that turned out to be baloney. Uh, you know, that was made up by by a ghostwriter. So um, I just t- took nothing for granted. And, and that's kind of the fun of it is, you know, what, what else can we find out about this? Everybody thought Ali was, he was the most famous man on earth. Uh, everybody thought we knew it all. Um, how much can I find out that we don't know? And, and that just turned out to be, you know, a great adventure for me. At what point does uh, what Hemingway called your bullshit detector go off? You start hearing these stories and you think, wait a second, that, that can't possibly be right. <laughs> when, do, when does that trigger for you? Is it, is it hanging out with Don King? At what, at what point does that go off for you? <laughs> uh, it, it, the bullshit detector goes off all the time um, <laughs> because um, everybody wants to say that they were Ali's best friend. Everybody wants to say they were the, they were the ones who saw this happen. Um, and, and you can't <laughs> trust any of it. Um, 
because because with Ali, it's it's like being around you know Paul Bunyan or something like that. Everybody wants to everyone wants to build up these myths, these legends, um, and you just gotta you gotta check out everything you can. And then even then, you know, when you write it, you have to just say that here's you know here's what we know and here's who said it, and you, you and you have to let the reader decide for themselves what they think is true because. I wasn't there, and uh, you know, even if I was, you know, even people who were there sometimes exaggerate. It's funny you bring that up because my grandfather was just a, a railroad worker on the south side of Chicago, and he, he mentioned to me in the past that, oh yeah, I, you know, I, I was around Ali, you know, in the '60s or whatever, and that probably wasn't true, but it's interesting that he did tell me that that was, you know, true, but I, I still don't believe it. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> you should have interviewed him, but. <laughs> Well, no, you, you know, the have. funny thing is everybody says they met Ali and it's usually right. true because Ali was so public. You know, he would just, if he was bored, he'd just go stand in the middle of traffic and see how long it would take for him to create a traffic jam. <laughs> and then he, you know, then he'd invite everybody out to dinner and, uh, and he was, he just loved people. He was, he's the only guy I ever heard of who would, you know, go to the airport hours early just so he could hang out. Yeah. And, and sign autographs because he just he just fed off of that stuff. Well, even in his later life, when he was living in Michigan, people just pull up to his estate and and be invited in, and hang out with him for the for the day, which is yeah, a pretty wish, incredible. I wish thing. that my dad, yeah, I wish my dad had taken me when I was a kid because you know he <laughs> he always opened the door, he always welcomed you in. Yeah. So you you started this book when he was alive. By the time uh, you were finished, he had passed away. Um, so you had the luxury of going from beginning to end. Um, it's a morbid luxury, I guess. Have you stopped to consider what the book would have looked like, uh, had he survived to, to publication? Well, yeah, I mean, I, obviously I, I didn't know that he was going to pass away and I was hoping that he would live long enough to see the book. Um, and I felt confident that, that the book would be complete other than his, you know, because he wasn't really doing much anymore. Um, and I figured, you know, if, 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 if he were alive when the book came out, that would be okay. And, and uh, I would just add, you know, when he did eventually die, I would add a, you know, a, a postscript to the next edition. Um, and I was really hoping to get to read him some of the book. His wife invited me to come read him the book, but then he got sick and passed away before I could do that. So mm-hmm. um, that was unfortunate, but um, I was really glad that I got to see the funeral. That was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. I've, I can't imagine anyone else in this country getting that kind of a send off where, you know, tens of thousands of people just line the streets to watch a hearse go by and people, you know, drive from all over the country to be there just to, again, just to see a hearse um, mm-hmm. because this guy meant so much to them. It was really do remarkable. The, do you get the sense that there's any sports figures alive now that will ever evoke a response like that when, when they pass away? No, no way. I can't think of anybody because now <laughs> they're all these, they're like, you know, you know, they're businessmen, they're products practically, yeah. you know, um, we loved watching Michael Jordan play basketball, but I don't think he ever really touched our souls, uh, made us care the way um, the way Ali did. I was thinking about that. Like, who who right now? If I, if I you know if someone wanted to sign me to a book contract and and you know try to do what you did, and I wouldn't come close. But if, if I could have the choice, who would I pick? And I, I eventually settled on Serena Williams. I think she's probably the current athlete who has the best story to tell uh, on multiple levels. Um, anyone else out there stand out to you? Yeah, that's a good one. I like the Serena because, you know, her story is a, is a journey and there's a, there's a, you know, an interesting, um, beginning and, 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 and she, she meant a lot to the sport. Um, 
I don't know. You know, I think about, you know, who are the most interesting baseball players, the most interesting football players of the, of, of the last generation. And I can't think of anybody who really would moves me to the point that I want to spend you know, three <laughs> years of my life um, working on their story. Um, it's a tough, it's a, it's a, you know, I set a really high bar. Well, let's dig into that story a little bit, a little bit more focused on, on Ali's uh, career itself. Everyone that has ever come in contact with sports has an opinion on Ali, but you now obviously are more educated than most. What do you see as the signature moment, the most Muhammad Ali moment in the ring for him? Was it Manila? Was it uh, fighting uh, George Foreman in the jungle? Was it something else, Sonny Liston? Where, where do you put that pinnacle? You know, I think there's there's probably two. The first one is is that opening round of the Sonny, first Sonny Liston fight when, when he stuns everybody and just shows that he can handle Liston. Um, that he's a real fighter, that he's not just uh, this gimmick, um, you know, speedy guy who, uh, you know, doesn't really belong in the ring with a, with a true heavyweight. That's, you know, moment number one. And then I think moment number two is um, when he gets knocked down by Frazier in, in 1971, Madison Square Garden, the fight, the fight of the century. It's the, it's really the moment that he, that he comes, that he makes his, his, statement that he's back you know he's back from his exile he's back in the ring with it with a shot at the championship but he gets knocked down by this vicious left hook and then he gets right back up and that's the key because we suddenly see him as human we see him as tough um we see that he can take a punch and and that's going to be so important to him over the rest of his career that that ability to take a punch becomes more important than the speed that he relied on in the first half of his career and it's also tragic because that ability to take a punch will end up costing him a lot of uh, a lot of physical damage. Yeah, that's that was feeds right into my next question. He goes with the rope a dope strategy to to draw the fighters in closer, but he, it ends up at a terrible cost to him. Ali was obviously not a guy that expressed a whole lot of regrets about anything, but did you get the sense later in life that he regretted something like that? That he regretted some of the choices that he'd made when he was younger? No, he said he would do it all again. And, you know, toward the end of his career, he knew that he was suffering brain damage. He talked about it. He asked reporters about it. Um, you know, I did a couple of things that were unusual for this book. First, I, I worked with CompuBox to count every punch of Ali's career, every punch he threw and every punch that he was hit with. And you can see by the, you know, the, the end of his career, he's just getting clobbered. He's getting punched way more than he's punching. And you, I also worked with speech scientists to study his, his rate of speech, how those punches affected his, his uh, verbal abilities. And you can see the steady decline. He loses 26% of his speaking rate over the course of the 1970s when he's fighting. And after each fight, you can see this sharp drops in his ability to speak clearly. It's really sad, but the saddest thing is that Ali knew it. And by the late 70s, he was asking reporters, do you think I got brain damage? And, and he was still getting in the ring with these you know, huge hitters who were making it worse. When do you think would have been the ideal time for him to quit? <laughs> well, some people would say age 12, but um, <laughs> to, be, to be realistic, I would say um, he should have quit after the Foreman fight. And that's when Elijah Muhammad begged him to quit. He, you know, he, he won the championship back. And he had beaten the biggest, baddest man on earth. He'd done it in Africa, which is, you know, unbelievably symbolic uh, for a man who's trying to prove that he's the king of the of the world and the and the baddest black man on earth. Um, that would have been a beautiful time to stop. He was already um, 30, 32 years old. Um, you know, he was um, 
past his prime. The rest after that was all, you know, um, easily avoidable, I think. So the obvious question then is why? Why keep going? Was it just money? Was it competition? Was it fame? What kept him in the ring? I think I'd rank it in terms of in order of money first, uh, fame second, and um, and then, like a lot of athletes, the, the feeling that this was all he really knew how to do. Um, he might be a success on television. He you know, might be success um, as, as a marketing man selling, you know, Ali Cola and Ali burgers. Um, but the boxing was what he was great at and he was reluctant to give it up. It's just like you see with so many athletes. For a long while, he was kind of hidden from, from public view, which was why Atlanta and the, the Olympic torch lighting was, was such a profound moment. People really hadn't seen him in, in such, um, you know, such a form for a long time. Um, not a lot was written about those years, and then even the years after Atlanta. Of the last 25 or 30 years of his life, what really stood out to you as the most interesting parts that you uncovered? Well, two things. One is, you know, he was sad. Um, he missed the spotlight. He, he didn't like the way he looked on television. Um, he, you know, he would get hired for you know three thousand dollars to sit at a trade show booth or a used car lot, and he enjoyed it. He loved being with his fans, but I think he was depressed at times. And then um, after the Olympic torch moment, he had this this. Uh, second, third, whatever it was, fourth chance to be a star again. And, and, and he really loved it. And he, you know, he, he was still not looking good on TV, but he was willing to put up with it. And he traveled the world and spoke about Islam. And, and I think that, um, you know, he also tried to atone for his sins a great deal in those last years. He felt like he had not been a good husband, a good father. He'd made a lot of mistakes and he felt like he wasn't going to go to heaven. Um, if he didn't do something to make up for those mistakes. I know that you've uh, heard and dealt with the, the Colin Kaepernick question, the sense of renewed social activism by athletes in a way that Ali was many, many years ago. Standing up obviously takes courage, but standing up against the blowback that you get takes a whole new level of willpower. How do you think transport Ali as he was in the 60s to today? How would he have stood up to the blowback that he get he would get for his standing up for his beliefs from everyone from Twitter to uh, to the White House. I think he would do the exact same thing that he did in the 1960s. He would say, you know, screw you. I don't care what you think about me. I'm, you know, his Declaration of Independence after the uh, Liston fight was, I don't have to say what you want me to say. I don't have to be what you want me to be. I'm free to be myself. I'm free to do what I want. And um, and and he was willing to pay the price for that. He was willing to lose three and a half years of his prime career because he refused to back down. And I think he would, he would say the same thing. He would uh, say if he were playing for the Dallas Cowboys, he would say to Jerry Jones, fine, I'm not playing this weekend. If you don't, if you don't like the way I behave, you, you know, um, you, you don't have to pay me. You don't, you don't have to play me. My beliefs come first. Isn't that fascinating? Because Kaepernick has obviously gone almost silent, and most of the other players are recognizing that they are, as you said, their businesses. But uh, Ali, his his beliefs were strong enough to him, obviously, that he would have uh, blown right past that. Yeah, and it, it, maybe it's a little bit different because these were religious beliefs, and he believed that he was following the word of God, and, and that his 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 uh, teacher Elijah Muhammad was a prophet. But nevertheless, his beliefs were were not all religious; they were political and social too. And he was 
willing to stand up for his convictions. He said he would face a firing squad before he would compromise. You know, at the time of his death, obviously people's perceptions of Ali were much different than they were in the 60s, which almost does a little disservice because he wasn't a saint by any means. Um, he was a messy figure and he did have beliefs. He, he, he was a lion. He did, did stand up and roar when, when he needed to roar. What effect do you think Parkins had on, on that legacy and, and getting it to that point? Because, you know, it robbed him as, of his voice, um, you know, to, to a large extent. Um, it made him a more sympathetic figure in, in, in people's eyes. Um, and then I think he also kind of just became this avatar to kind of assign, you know, whatever writer was tackling him on that day, like they could assign it to him. Um, and it's kind of a tragedy. It's it's depressing. But do you think it had a big effect on um I guess in, on his final obituaries. Yeah, it had a huge effect, and and, uh, and I think in some ways it's an unfortunate effect um, because, as you said, he you know he becomes this avatar, he becomes all things to all people, he becomes you know Saint Muhammad, and and that's not what he wanted, and that's not what he was about. Um, you know, in some ways, it's the marketing team's dream because he you know you can put his his, his name or his image on a t-shirt and, and, and he, he means all things to all people. Um, but Ali didn't want that when he was young and, and, and in some ways it's unfair because his legacy should be one of a fighter, somebody who was a rebel, somebody who was a thorn in the side of America, not somebody who was a, you know, a comfort to all of us in our old age as we began to get weak. And, you know, there's something dangerous about the fact that we reduce our, our rebel heroes to to these warm fuzzy icons, you know Martin Luther King was a radical. He was, um, you know, he he was he wanted to over he wanted to to, to completely overturn the, the system of capitalism, and and Muhammad Ali wanted to um, end integration and, and and create a world where blacks could live independently. You know, these were radical ideas, and and that's why they're important. That's why these figures are important because they dared to try to change the country. If we just turn them into statues and, and, you know, warm, fuzzy images that we can all get along with, then we lose appreciation for why they mattered. Yeah, well, I think your book does a great job of, of really getting to the essence and presenting all different sides of, of who Muhammad Ali was. Where do you think his legacy goes from here, um, you know, in, in the decades ahead? I hope that we'll start to see um, him placed in history better. Um, you know, my book, I hope, will be a start for that. Um, Ken Burns is working on an Ali documentary, and I'm sure that that will be a, a, a great um, project, and, and I'm happy to be involved in, in working on it. Um, so I, I hope that, you know, it, enough time has gone by now. It's been more than 50 years since Ali um, protested the Vietnam War and, and was banned from boxing, that we can start to put him in historical perspective and, and um Stop treating him like a uh, like a saint, and and uh, really see why he mattered. Well, your book Ali Alive is a great accomplishment, um, and you know what I haven't mentioned is it's a great like looking book too. You you like it the the cover is awesome. It looks awesome on my bookshelf. You know it's right next to my you know Joe DiMaggio biography and Roberto Clemente and and the Vince Lombardi. Uh, biography, and it stands up to all those. I mean, this is really one of the great sports biographies, Jonathan and. I want to thank you for writing it. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate those kind words. Uh, you know, Ali deserved the greatest biography of all time, and I, I did my best to try to deliver it. 
Cool. Well, everyone should go check out Ali A Life by Jonathan Eig out in uh, bookstores now, Amazon, uh, wherever you want to find it. Is there a, a certain spot where people should should purchase it from, Jonathan? Well, if you go to my website, which is alithebook.com, you can then, uh, there's a list of places you can just pick right from there, your independent bookstore, your, um, you know, your, your whatever your favorite, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, wherever you like to buy books. Awesome. Well, thanks uh, for your time today, and uh, we'll talk to you down the road. All right. Thanks so much, guys. Great stuff. And you didn't mention that this book is the size of like a cinder block, man. I mean, this thing, you could actually go toe to toe with someone in the ring holding only this book and you'd probably be, you know, right. it, it is. And it's one of those ones. It's like, wow, how am I ever going to finish this? But damn, it reads fast. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan's copy is, is very accessible. It's very light, but it's just packed with so much information. And I, you know, the, the part where he's talking about counting every one of his punches, and I, I think he gets to the the total of, of punches he faced in the ring, which is nuts. Um, you know, he, he got a hold of his, you know, brain scans, uh, which he talks about in that podcast, which I really can't recommend enough. If you're a, a good podcast listener, go check out Chasing Ali by Jonathan. It's like 12 episodes, and each is like 15 minutes long, which is actually kind of perfect. And when when I did when I did listen to it, I, I came in four or five episodes, and I listened to like the first five like right away, and then yeah. I would wait every week. Um, but yeah, the, the book just kind of reads so quickly, and I kind of contrast that to some other books. Like I, I think I'm still reading, you know, Team of Rivals by Doris Kearns Goodwin. It's, at some point, I will finish that book, and it's still a good book. That's your that's but. your white whale. I, I, I have a lot of white whale books at this point. But, Mine is, uh, uh, Nor- speaking of Norm- Norman Mailer, we talked about him there. I'm reading Executioner's Song. And uh, it's yeah. about as big as this, but it is a slog, man. This book I've, is actually, not- I've actually gotten to the end of that book. I actually, that's that's one of the, the, the big books that I actually have read. But it, it did take a while. Um, but th- this is not that book. It is, I mean, it is really, really good. I mean, I, I, I didn't want to seem like I was sucking up to him too much, but like, <laughs> he is... I, He's up there with David Moranis. He's up there with Richard Ben Kramer. Uh, when you read this book, I mean, however much you know, however much you pay for it, you're not going to uh, to regret it. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, you and I are very much uh, in terms of journalists, children of the internet and the 200 word mm-hmm. blog posts. But, but as readers, and hopefully you, the listener, are the same way. As readers, you know, we like getting lost in a book. We like descending yeah. into a book and being there for 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 days. And this is exactly the kind of way that you can do that. By, by the way, you still read physical books. You're not you're not an e-reader Kindle guy, are yes. you? Yes, that's that's a physical book banging on my desk right now. That's the Ali book, yeah. as a matter of fact. Well, I mean, when, when these publishing houses um, send send them out, they still send out actual physical books. I'm not exactly sure why. Like, it seems like they would save a lot of money by just saying, "Hey, do you have a Kindle? Here's the digital copy." Um, maybe it's for pirating. I don't. I have no idea. Yeah, but. Um, I still, you know, I, I still love the physical act of completion, I, and I think they're. You know, in a way that, like, I didn't regret ever getting rid of CDs or DVDs. I still like having books around. I still think there's a lot of other people that like having books around. I I, I mean, I think there's been articles written about this saying that books are never going to go away because people still love the satisfaction of getting to that last page and putting it on a shelf. Absolutely. Yes. And you'll Uh, have to clear plenty of shelf space for this one. Yeah. So uh, anyhow, uh, speaking of great book conversations, we have another one coming up for next week. Uh, We're going to be talking about the year of the pitcher, Bob Gibson, Denny McLean, and the end of baseball's golden age. Uh, That book is is just released and it's a great time to talk about the world series. Uh, Obviously the 1968 world series is, is one of the pinnacle fall classics of the sports history. Uh, And Sridhar Papu, a New York times columnist, 
uh, wrote about this, and uh, I, I'm going to have to read this like in the next week or so. But it's a little bit um, it's shorter the, the, than the Muhammad Ali book, but I'm I'm looking forward to digging in. So yeah, baseball and boxing, those are the two. Those are the two. You know, other than other than auto racing, when Jay Busby's writing about <laughs> it. Uh, those yes. are the two sports you want to read about. This is uh, yeah, this is this is Kadek's uh, wheelhouse right here. You know, I've got a couple of basketball books here. I got Malinowski's Beta Ball on the Golden State Warriors. I've got Shea Serrano's Basketball and other things. I just got Shea Serrano's book because I was like, all right, if Lin Manuel Miranda, did you see that tweet yesterday? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that was that crazy. So one, I think it's crazy that Lin Manuel Miranda is reading Shea Serrano's book. Two, I find it crazy that he actually went had to physically go into a bookstore to buy it. What? <laughs> I mean, you know, if anyone is down with Amazon Prime at this point, I would think it's probably one of the more famous people in America right now. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, he said something about uh, having to pose for selfies. So, you know, maybe he's a little bit, he's got a little of the Ali in him, you know, likes to be out there amongst the people. Good for him. Yeah. So, anyway, this has been Grandstanding. Uh, Kevin Kadick and Jay Busby, if you like what you hear, make sure you subscribe to us on the podcast platform of your choice. Also, follow us on Twitter at Kevin Kadick. And HJ Busby. And most importantly, tell a friend. Uh, we love getting good word of mouth out here on this podcast. We like to offer some good sports talk, some good book talk. Hopefully, you got a little bit of both today. So, until next time, this has been Grandstanding on Yahoo Sports.